TED Audio Collective. This is TED Health. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Today, we're listening to a talk by data scientist Sinan Aral about how misinformation works and what we can do to combat it. Sinan focuses a lot on political misinformation, but health misinformation is also rampant, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. After the talk, stick around to hear my interview with Andy Slavitt. He's the former White House senior advisor for the COVID-19 response under the Biden administration. And I spoke to him about how to spot public health misinformation, where messaging falls short, and where to go from here. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on fitness trends. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas that you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for this podcast comes from The Wonderful Company. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know the pistachios that come from this company. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Get snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. I love the various wonderful pistachio flavors. So in addition to the original flavor, I'm particularly fond of the salt and vinegar. And I keep little packets of them in my car so that I can eat and get some protein on the run. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. So on April 23rd of 2013, the Associated Press put out the following tweet. Uh, on Twitter. It said, breaking news, two explosions at the White House, and Barack Obama has been injured. This tweet was retweeted 4,000 times in less than five minutes, and it went viral thereafter. Now, this tweet wasn't real news put out by the Associated Press. In fact, it was false news or fake news that was propagated by Syrian hackers that had infiltrated the Associated Press Twitter handle. Their purpose was to disrupt society, but they disrupted much more because automated trading algorithms immediately seized on the sentiment on this tweet and began trading based on the potential that the president of the United States had been injured or killed in this explosion. And as they started tweeting, they immediately sent the stock market crashing, wiping out $140 billion in equity value in a single day. 
Robert Mueller, special counsel prosecutor in the United States, issued indictments against three Russian companies and 13 Russian individuals on a conspiracy to defraud the United States by meddling in the 2016 presidential election. And what this indictment tells as a story is the story of the Internet Research Agency, the shadowy arm of the Kremlin on social media. The Internet Agency's efforts reached 126 million people on Facebook in the United States, issued 3 million individual tweets, and 43 hours worth of YouTube content, all of which was fake, misinformation designed to sow discord uh, in the U.S. presidential election. A recent study by Oxford University showed that in the recent Swedish elections, one-third of all of the information spreading on social media about the election was fake or misinformation. In addition, these types of social media misinformation campaigns can spread what has been called genocidal propaganda. For instance, against the Rohingya in Burma, triggering mob killings in India. We studied fake news and began studying it before it was a popular term. And we recently published uh, the largest ever longitudinal study of the spread of fake news online on the cover of Science. We studied all of the verified true and false news stories that ever spread on Twitter from its inception in 2006 to 2017. And when we studied this information, we studied verified news stories that were verified by six independent fact-checking organizations. So we knew which stories were true and which stories were false. We can measure their diffusion, the speed of their diffusion, the depth and breadth of their diffusion, how many people become entangled in this information cascade, and so on. And what we did in this paper was we compared the spread of true news to the spread of false news. And here's what we found. We found that false news diffused further, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information that we studied, sometimes by an order of magnitude. And in fact, false political news was the most viral. It diffused further, faster, deeper, and more broadly than any other type of false news. When we saw this, we were at once worried, but also curious. Why? Why does false news travel so much further, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth? The first hypothesis that we came up with was, well, maybe people who spread false news have more followers, or follow more people, or tweet more often, or maybe they're more often verified users of Twitter with more credibility, or maybe they've been on Twitter longer. So we checked each one of these in turn. And what we found was exactly the opposite. False news spreaders had fewer followers, followed fewer people, were less active, less often verified, and had been on Twitter for a shorter period of time. And yet, false news was 70% more likely to be retweeted than the truth, controlling for all of these and many other factors. So we had to come up with other explanations. And we devised what we called a novelty hypothesis. So if you read the literature, it is well known that human attention is drawn to novelty, things that are new in the environment. And if you read the sociology literature, you know that we like to share novel information. It makes us seem like we have access to inside information, and we gain in status by spreading this kind of information. 
So what we did was we measured the novelty of an incoming true or false tweet compared to the corpus of what that individual had seen in the 60 days prior on Twitter. But that wasn't enough because we thought to ourselves, well, maybe false news is more novel in an information-theoretic sense, but maybe people don't perceive it as more novel. So to understand people's perceptions of false news, we looked at the information and the sentiment contained in the replies to true and false tweets. And what we found was that across a bunch of different measures of sentiment, surprise, disgust, fear, sadness, anticipation, joy, and trust, false news exhibited significantly more surprise and disgust in the replies to false tweets. And true news exhibited significantly more anticipation, joy, and trust in reply to true tweets. The surprise corroborates our novelty hypothesis. This is new and surprising, and so we're more likely to share it. At the same time, there was congressional testimony in front of both houses of Congress in the United States looking at the role of bots in the spread of misinformation. So we looked at this too. We used multiple sophisticated bot detection algorithms to find the bots in our data and to pull them out. So we pulled them out, we put them back in, and we compared what happens to our measurement. And what we found was that, yes, indeed, bots were accelerating the spread of false news online, but they were accelerating the spread of true news at approximately the same rate, which means bots are not responsible for the differential diffusion of truth and falsity online. We can't abdicate that responsibility because we, humans, are responsible for that spread. Now, everything that I have told you so far, unfortunately for all of us, is the good news. The reason is because it's about to get a whole lot worse. And two specific technologies are going to make it worse. We are going to see the rise of a tremendous wave of synthetic media, fake video, fake audio, that is very convincing to the human eye. And this will be powered by two technologies. The first of these is known as generative adversarial network. This is a machine learning model with two networks, a discriminator, whose job it is to determine whether something is true or false, and a generator, whose job it is to generate synthetic media. So the synthetic generator generates synthetic video or audio, and the discriminator tries to tell, is this real or is this fake? And in fact, it is the job of the generator to maximize the likelihood that it will fool the discriminator into thinking the synthetic video and audio that it is creating is actually true. Imagine a machine in a hyperloop trying to get better and better at fooling us. This combined with a second technology, which is essentially the democratization of artificial intelligence to the people. The ability for anyone without any background in artificial intelligence or machine learning to deploy these kinds of algorithms to generate synthetic media makes it ultimately so much easier to create videos. There are about five different paths that I can think of that we can follow to try and address some of these very difficult problems today. Each one of them has promise, but each one of them has its own challenges.
The first one is labeling. Think about it this way. When you go to the grocery store to buy food to consume, it's extensively labeled. You know how many calories it has, how much fat it contains. And yet when we consume information, we have no labels whatsoever. What is contained in this information? Is the source credible? Where is this information gathered from? We have none of that information when we are consuming information. That is a potential avenue, but it comes with its challenges. For instance, who gets to decide in society what's true and what's false? Is it the governments? Is it Facebook? Is it an independent consortium of fact checkers? And who's checking the fact checkers? Another potential avenue is incentives. We know that during the U.S. presidential election, there was a wave of misinformation that came from Macedonia that didn't have any political motive, but instead had an economic motive. And this economic motive existed because false news travels so much farther, faster, and more deeply than the truth, and you can earn advertising dollars as you garner eyeballs and attention with this type of information. But if we can depress the spread of this information, perhaps it would reduce the economic incentive to produce it at all in the first place. Third, we can think about regulation. And certainly we should think about this option. In the United States currently, we are exploring what might happen if Facebook and others are regulated. While we should consider things like regulating political speech, labeling the fact that it's political speech, making sure foreign actors can't fund political speech, it also has its own dangers. And in authoritarian regimes, these kinds of policies can be used to suppress minority opinions and to continue to extend repression. The fourth possible option is transparency. We want to know, how do Facebook's algorithms work? How does the data combine with the algorithms to produce the outcomes that we see? We want them to open the kimono and show us exactly the inner workings of how Facebook is working. And if we want to know social media's effect on society, we need scientists, researchers, and others to have access to this kind of information. But at the same time, we are asking Facebook to lock everything down, to keep all of the data secure. So Facebook and the other social media platforms are facing what I call a transparency paradox. We are asking them at the same time to be open and transparent and simultaneously secure. This is a very difficult needle to thread, but they will need to thread this needle if we are to achieve the promise of social technologies while avoiding their peril. The final thing that we could think about is algorithms and machine learning, technology devised to root out and understand fake news, how it spreads, and to try and dampen its flow. Humans have to be in the loop of this technology because we can never escape that underlying any technological solution or approach is a fundamental ethical and philosophical question about how do we define truth and falsity? To whom do we give the power to define truth and falsity? And which opinions are legitimate? Which type of speech should be allowed? And so on. Technology is not a solution for that. Ethics and philosophy is a solution for that. Nearly every theory of human decision-making, human cooperation, and human coordination has some sense of the truth at its core. But with the rise of fake news, 
the rise of fake video, the rise of fake audio, we are teetering on the brink of the end of reality, where we cannot tell what is real from what is fake. And that's potentially incredibly dangerous. We have to be vigilant in defending the truth against misinformation with our technologies, with our policies, and perhaps most importantly, with our own individual responsibilities, decisions, behaviors, and actions. Thank you very much. Support for this episode comes from the University of Illinois Geese College of Business MBA program, known as the IMBA. You deserve a flexible online degree program that delivers the level of rich interaction and impact you'd experience on campus. Jacqueline Price Osafo, a graduate of the program, can vouch for this. My name is Jacqueline Price Osafo. I am the Chief Executive Officer for the Society of American Archivists. I am a graduate of the University of Illinois Geese College of Business IMBA program. I did this when I was 50 years old. I said, this is Jackie 5.0 because I'm 50 years old and I'm going back to school to get an MBA. So I was a little worried about the fact that chances are I'm probably going to be the oldest person in my class. But it didn't stop me. I actually connected and formed my own little sort of like micro network of folks. We call ourselves the Fantastic Four. And I called myself the auntie in the group because they were all in their 30s. And the places where I had gaps, they helped me. And the places that they had gaps, I was able to help them. So we did amazing things together. We supported each other. We started the journey together. And the Fantastic Four walked across the stage together. And we're still friends today. When it comes to diversity, and as we move into the space of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, this program offered all of those things. So it checked all of those boxes for me. I saw folks who looked like me, and not only just classmates, but professors. That made me very comfortable when sitting in the classroom. My ultimate goal was to move into the C-suite, to be a CEO. Um, the MBA gave me the skills that I needed where I had some gaps. I already had a level of confidence, and this just pushed my confidence level from probably like 500 to 1,000. It does make you feel good when you walk into a room with an MBA. If you want to walk away with the confidence and with the security that you are the baddest person in the room, that you have the skill set that you need to be better than the person sitting next to you, do this program. It will be an incredible ride. Take the journey. Arrive with an interest, and the Geese College of Business MBA program will help you leave with a purpose. Learn more at giesonline.illinois.edu. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with someone who I've always wanted to talk to. Andy Slavitt is former White House Senior Advisor for the COVID-19 response under the Biden administration and was acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under the Obama administration. Andy, it's such an honor to get to have this conversation with you today. Thanks for having me, Shoshana. Andy, so let's talk misinformation. Now, you know, this isn't a new issue, of course, but it's had deadly consequences during the pandemic. Can you quantify how much of a role that you think misinformation has played in vaccine hesitancy throughout this pandemic? And do you think it's still playing a role? 
Well, if you talk to Rob Califf, the head of the FDA, he would tell you that today uh, misinformation could be the number one killer in the country. You know, I don't know that I could uh, be so bold as to quantify it or make or make that claim, but it's really serious uh, because you know I think a lot of people have a lot of information coming at them quickly. They don't know who to trust. And when you have issues that become polarized and people have agendas, it gets to be made even more complex. So you don't have to be a scientist or have a science degree to recognize misinformation. How can we all learn to identify it? Um, does does misinformation usually have a hallmark of some sort? Or you know, how do you how do you think about this? Well, one one hallmark of something that you want to be a little bit skeptical of are people relaying anecdotes that that play into fears. Because if you're if you're spreading disinformation purposely or misinformation, you're playing on people's doubts. So when you say, you know, if you if you look at a statement that begins, "I'm not anti-vaccine," but you can be pretty sure what follows is going to be playing into some fear. I'm not anti-vaccine, but I have a cousin who was trying to get pregnant and had a miscarriage after she got vaccinated. All you have to do is plant that little seed of doubt. Uh, and if you're a young woman of childbearing age, you might say, huh, that's enough of a doubt for me to be concerned. What you should expect is that people who tell you things can give you a source, can can quote a study. It also could tell you what amount of what they're telling you they're certain about and what amount they're telling you uh, about is still um, not known by the latest science. And so I find it much more credible to talk to people who say, this is what we know, and this is what we don't know. And this is the part that we're speculating about and could change. And here's my source, here's the study. It's either very reliable or it's very indicative, if not completely reliable. Do you think we should be doing more to teach critical thinking or understanding the scientific method for kids in schools? Well, there's no question that education plays a part in this uh, over the long term. Uh, and, and you know, hopefully the just we, we create a set of norms around uh, people checking their sources where they get information. Um, look, I mean, some of this is very complex, right? And when you're in a desperate situation um, – you know, you're you don't know what to believe, and if you have five different people saying five different things, and each of them seems self interested, the question is, you know, where do you go for a truth? And um, that's a question that I think does does take some exploration. And you know, I encourage people to pick two or three reliable people, one ideally locally, um, that that they that they really trust, that they feel is delivering them consistent, even-handed information uh, that own up to it when they miss something and they're, and they're not correct. And that when they want to know what to do, i.e., you know, I have COVID, should I take Paxlovid? Uh, I want to prevent myself from getting COVID. I want to visit my grandmother. What should I do? That there's reliable places uh, for, uh, for that. And I think, you know, the, there, there are those sources out there. Um, but I think we've got a lot of people that just are happy enough to pick their own sources and plenty of people that are happy to credit themselves with expertise that they don't have. I have a question for you about messaging and this idea of corrected science. Now, do you think we should have done a better job of 
kind of talking about this in the context of the pandemic as information has unfolded over months and now years? Well, I think we have a tendency to think we're better off oversimplifying a message so that everyone gets it, i.e. get vaccinated. It's the panacea. Uh, And there's merit to keeping the message simple. But the problem is when things change and things evolve, as you're pointing out, um, things you believe to be true uh, are be- become less true later. What we know about how masks work has changed. What we know about um, how, about how tests work has changed. And as the variants have come, um, what we know about how effective boosters are and how long they last has changed. So if you, you can't blame someone for feeling like you used to tell me that I needed to do X, and now you're telling me that X isn't enough, but it's not enough, or it's enough to prevent hospitalization, but it's not enough to prevent me from getting infected. You know, pardon me if I don't trust you. And I think scientists have to crawl off of the ivory tower and understand that people aren't trusting them for a reason. And that reason often enough has to do with uh, talking over people's heads, trying to oversimplify the message, being uh, uh, patronizing enough to think that people can't handle and understand the nuance. I found, you know, look, I, I went for four months in front of the cameras at the White House to talk to the press and the public. And I found a very helpful way to think about it was to imagine that I was talking to my sister who was asking me a question about COVID because my sister is an incredibly intelligent person. She's not necessarily a scientist. She's not necessarily a public health person, but she's smart. And if she asked me her advice about should she travel or should she get a vaccine or get a booster or what have you, she would want a real explanation, a truthful explanation. On the one hand, here's how I think about it. Here's, on the other hand, here's the, the cons. And um, and overall, you've got to make your own choice, but here's how I would advise you. That's what I would say to my sister. So that's what I tried to say directly to the public when I would um, get, on, uh, get on camera. Or uh, occasionally I would say, look, the news is, uh, I wish the news was better, but we're not going to know this for six weeks. And I think that form of direct communication is noticed and appreciated because people, um, people grow skeptical. Even if people didn't start skeptical, they grow skeptical when things don't seem to match up to the, what they're experiencing. Certainly. And I think as a physician, I can tell you I, I was not taught anything about how to message to the public. Uh, and, and certainly I think we don't come at it with enough humility, as, as you pointed out. Um, I want to ask, what lessons have you learned about public health misinformation, maybe that have surprised you? And and what do you hope we take with us going forward? So, look, there is always a phenomenon um, uh, in, in public health, which, which is um, that after the fact, things seem like they were obvious all along. Uh, you might think of this as hindsight bias. Um, you know, once you know how Delta evolved and how Omicron evolved, um, it feels like back in 2020, we should have been preparing ourselves for these wild uh, adaptation mechanisms of, of, the, of the virus. And it is not uh, always possible to know those things. And those things that seem obvious by retrospect cause us to go back and judge people a little bit unfairly. So we can't look forward very effectively. You know, we're not good at predicting the future. We're amazing at describing the past. Mm. 
So true. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and and your service to this country. Thank you, Shoshana. Great to be here. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media with help from Mitchell Johnson and fact-checked by Vanessa Garcia-Woodworth. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Sammy Case, Grace Rubenstein, Maria Lagius, and Colin Helms. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next week.